0: You're listening to the City Lights podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, and it's great to see you guys here on the second Sunday of uh, 2020. How many, uh, by raise of hands, are sticking to your New Year's resolutions? Feel real strong right now. Not seeing a lot of hands. That I, yeah, by hand, the show of hands. I'm looking at five. Five, sixes percent, you know, have a small congregation here. So one hand could really make a big difference. Um, but, uh, but my buddy Luke, I talk about Luke from stage, I feel like every week now. So But he's killing it, man. I saw your hand and it needs to be up. He has given up all of the things. And uh, I told him, he already has a great frame. You know, people that just like have that kind of Captain America look to him. You know what I'm saying? I just want to sniff when I'm around him. He, feels like, he smells like musk. He smells like manliness. Anyways, uh, he's, uh, he's probably going to be just splitting logs with his bare hands, uh, coming up soon from some of the dietary things that he, that he's doing. But anyways, it's, um, it's great to be here and this is going to be the best year yet. And ultimately God's always doing new things and every day is a new day for mercy. And so, uh, wherever you are, I just want to encourage you, um, you're in the right spot and keep going and you're doing better than you think you are. And, uh, and the Lord Jesus is, um, Uh, loves you more than you even love yourself. So I just want to communicate that. Um, If you're new here, we are devoted to the Scriptures, and we're not just reading the Bible just to say that we're a Christian. We're reading the Bible because it's powerful to transform us. The Scripture is inspirational. It's God-inspired, and it is infallible um, for uh, His church to discern truth in a very murky and sometimes foggy uh, worldview and and, and, and culture that we live in. It's a clairvoyant truth for His church and really for the world. Um, and so, um, and so we read the scripture every week with diligence um, and devotion because we know it's transforming us, and it makes us more like Jesus. And the best gift we could give to ourselves, and to the world, and to our family, and to our neighbors, is to be transformed to the image of His Son. Yeah, uh, it's it's the best image to be um, to be conformed to. And, um, and so the Bible is, is not a golden handbook, it's not a, a list of fortune cookies, it's not just something that's handed out of the sky, uh, it is divinely inspired through through authors written to various audiences throughout time, and so just the two questions that I always want to consider on the screen here uh, as we go to the scriptures um, is looking for context and understanding what is the meaning of this passage. One of the reasons why we not only study and teach but also preach the Word of God is because uh, the Word of God is an old book, you know, relatively speaking, and, um, and so it needs to be be interpreted it needs to be thought of from its original context what did the author intend to mean you know if i took martin luther king's speech and i said oh this is about the mississippi river and the mountains and things and some geographical you know um, uh, disposition that's not that's not his intent the author has an intent and we we would want to honor his intent uh, or her intent by by discerning what was the author's message and then from there we can we can dissect, we can discuss, you know, the application of that. We've been in a series uh, of Genesis called God and Man. If you want to look at the poster, it's been a little while since we left off with our dear friend Noah. This is the Bible Project map. You can get a paper version of it outside. You can also find it on BibleProject.com. And I know it's a lot going on if we could dim the lights, but we're basically on this half of the page. And we're about to move into the second half of the page, which is awesome. We have two more messages in this side. But... The major recap uh, last time on the City Lights God and Man series um, is that uh, we find ourselves in a room full of image bearers this morning. That is one of the major messages of Genesis is that uh, people are not uh, made to uh, just enjoy themselves or to avoid being lonely or to be successful, but we are made to be sideways facing mirrors. To reflect to the creation what God is like, and to uh, reflect to God what creation ought to be like in its best. And so we are, we are uh, as if you were go to a temple, or you go to a, even a shrine and you see a statue, uh, God says we don't make statues of him, uh, because, because we are his statues, we are his trophies of grace. We are the, the symbols in the middle of the temple to help to explain to the world what God is like. That is you, that is me. Uh, regardless of where you are and what you consider your, your religion or theology to be, is that we are made to be images and reflections of God. A major problem happened because we failed to trust God and see him as the God that we reflect and wanted to become gods ourselves. And by taking, instead of trusting, we took from God what he wanted to give to us in the first place, which was, um, which was to rule under him above the creation. We wanted to rule on our own. And so out of that comes the spiral of sin and curse and chaos. And so what we find at the bottom of the, the, uh, the picture here, we're actually gonna be on six through nine, that's kind of finishing up the flood, is the story of Noah. And Noah uh, is a particular person in uh, history, um, but he is also um, a picture of humanity for all time. And it says in the scriptures that Noah has somehow figured to find grace with God. He has, he, has, um, he has learned to walk with God, as Enoch did in the genealogy of Genesis 5. He has learned how to find grace and to live upright with God Um, in, in this world. And so what we're going to pick up from, from there is to, to see how the story unfolds beyond the receding of the waters and the inauguration of the, of the new creation, uh, that God begins, um, after he has uh, flooded the earth. And so um, I, uh, I've had a lot of um, superheroes in my history that I have uh, looked up to. Um, I've not been shy on the stage to talk about some of my uh, childhood dreams and heroes and posters that I had on my eight-year-old wall. Uh, but uh, one of those heroes, the first one, was the only hero that we need to consider on the top of that apex, which is Superman. Uh, Seinfeld says that he's the greatest superhero, and I tend to agree. Uh, Superman, uh, from, from a young boy's perspective, is just completely... Invincible, You know, other than kryptonite, he has the one kind of flaw and weak spot, chink in his armor. But he is, other than that, perfect in every respect. He can fly, he can lift tall buildings, he can jump over them in a single bound. He has laser x-ray vision. Some of you guys forget that he can blow frost into a lake and make an ice, ice sheath to put out fires. That happened in Superman 3. So these are some things, uh, the utility knife, that, that Superman can, can be. And there is only really one true, you know, personified Superman, if it's not on a graphic art. It's, it's Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeves, of course, in the 80s, man. I mean, he just filled that suit out better than Luke Stephensmeyer could fill it out. He looked great. That suit was amazing. I mean, for all the special effects that were lacking the 80s, man, they pulled it off. And he would fly around on this screen, obviously a blue screen, right? And they would uh, put the clouds behind him, and the wind would blow in his perfectly suave hair. And he'd fly through the thing, and, and, and he was awesome. And I loved, I loved his suit. And this is what I realized at 35. It's the suit that really makes the man in this sense, it's like Superman's suit was so vibrant and like royal blue, it was hemming onto purple. And the cape had the like overlay of the perfect, you know, you couldn't buy it from the costume shop. My mom had to like sew me one that was just right. And the cape had the yellow imprint on the back and it was just that brand, man, it was perfect. He, he, he just popped out of the page. And they made Metropolis, I remember from the cinematography, look very, very gray and dull. And he would just kind of pop off the page, you know, being Superman. And so, um, and so, so in this chapter, in, in Genesis chapter 9, um, we, uh, we see the humanity side of, of Noah come about. As a matter of fact, when he's introduced in chapter 9, rather than saying he is upright and righteous in all respects, according to his generation, it says he is a man of the soil, is the way that Noah is introduced. It's a, it's a different invitation. It's a different introduction to the character of Noah after he gets out of the boat. And he says he plants a vineyard, and it says he gets drunk in that vineyard, and then the story kind of unfolds from there. But the, the story of Noah in Genesis chapter, chapter 9, contrasted with 6, 7, and 8, shows, the, again, the, the humanity and the frailty and the vulnerability of Noah as a picture of really every man and every woman, as a picture of a, of a human. And so uh, that's where we'll pick up um, today. So it says in Genesis chapter 9, uh, it says, The sons of Noah, they, uh, they come out of the ark. Okay, so the ark was... Um, from Sunday school, if you have any background on that, or if you're here in the last couple of weeks, is, is, is the boat that God commanded Noah to build. And it represented um, a salvation for he and his family. God called Noah to build the boat. God called Noah to get onto the boat. God sealed Noah inside of the boat. God told Noah to wait in the boat. And even as the waters receded, Noah did not exit the boat until God commanded him to do it. And so in verse 18 of chapter nine, as we pick up on Noah's story, as it continues, it says that his sons come out of the boat. His sons come out of the boat, Ham, Seth and J- or Ham, um, Japheth and uh, Shem, excuse me Shem, come out of the boat and uh, so so to, to the to the eye of the, of the Bible reader here as we study this passage, what needs to kind of come alive for us uh, as, as the sons sort of take the stage as the main characters of the story rather than Noah, although Noah is very close at hand in driving the plot forward in the story is is that uh, the sons um, need to speak to us as kind of a generational legacy. We've talked about this before, but it's, you know, we don't remember our great-grandfather's name, but in that day and age, like, your sons and what your sons did represented more than just kind of like, um, you know, was it convenient or inconvenient to put put them to bed at night? Did they listen to what she said? Did they get good grades? It's like, it's all about, like, did the legacy continue? Did what I start grow into fruition? That becomes the question. It becomes a question of legacy. And, and really, as we've been discussing about Noah representing kind of like what humanity is and the whole story of God and man, these sons have a lot of expectation on their shoulders. Like what happens next is significant uh, because it represents the... The human story, it represents like, like Michael Jordan can be great at basketball, but his sons aren't necessarily like that, right? So, so the question becomes about the promise of God and the covenant of God and the character of man is, is Noah was upright and Noah built the ark and Noah followed God and, and he found grace and favor with God. But what about his sons? That would be the question. That would be the question of, uh, of, 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 um, of analysis, to, of, of understanding like, like how is the promise moving forward? So it says the sons come out of the ark and their names are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then it says this sentence, which it says several times, and that also clues us into the universalism of the story. Like it's trying to speak to something bigger than just one family tree. It says that Ham was the father of Canaan, and Ham's name is never mentioned outside of the nation that he's going to birth. So God's not just talking about a person or a brother. He's talking about a nation, a line, a culture, a people group, a, a whole like sector of humanity, if you will, of like how, how is this story going to carry on? Will the people trust God or will they take from God? Will, will the people believe in the covenant of God and respond to it? Or will they go and take their own destiny and future into their own hands? This is what's at stake. Verse 19. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. So that's not very encouraging, that word scattered. That's not very encouraging. We can feel the looming, kind of uh, brooding, uh, pre, you know, previewing there of, of the storyline. Because remember, the whole purpose of man was to, to fill the earth, to be fruitful, to be multiply, to, multiply, to rule and subdue and to fill the earth, not be scattered among the earth. It was to multiply. And, and we'll get into it next week where the Tower of Babel is the antithesis of the original design of human beings. We're not supposed to cluster together in one spot and create a hierarchy of power over each other. We're supposed to spread out, multiply, and be gardeners to, to, to harness the latent potential of, of humanity of this world. And so you see them not obeying that, and we're seeing the previewed consequence that they're going to be scattered. And so... Uh, and so we see, um, we see the, the story kind of begin to repeat the pattern of Genesis 3 uh, as we read on in verse 20. Noah it says in verse 20, the new introduction is he's not a man who's upright and righteous and walks with God. Instead, Noah is just a man of the soil. He's the average, everyday Joe, Bob, and Phil. He's just a guy. He's a man of the soil is the way it introduced. And then it goes on, it says, he proceeds to plant a vineyard, a new kind of a garden, but a little bit different. So we're watching that parallelism uh, from Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Verse 21, when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk, and it says he lay uncovered inside of his his tent. So we start to see the parallelism, or uh, they call it recursion, I guess, is the fancy way of saying it, but it just means a repeat of Genesis 2 and 3 in the story of Noah, and we've already been seeing that. As a matter of fact, if we could just look at the the chart that I kind of made up here, we can see, uh, boy, that is a lot on this big old screen. Boy, that is a lot. I'm sorry about that. Uh, we can see, I put on the top, Adam and Eve's story. And that story continuing, although it's being a little bit different into the second story, of Noah and his sons. This is completely um, uh, an important part of the literary structure of Genesis uh, 3 and Genesis 9. And so what you have at the top is uh, you have a seven-day creation. And as we talked about in Genesis chapter 8, you had a couple of days in which the water would receive off of Mount Ararat, and you would show the tops of the leaves, and the bird would fly out, and there was mountains, and so forth. And so what you would get from the biblical reading is that He's kind of making a new kind of creation. You would see that God's breath breathed onto the water, and the water was hovering over the deep in both the beginning of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 8. And you're starting to see the water received just as God had parted the waters in Genesis 1. So he's doing a new thing in an old geography. He is creating a new spiritual environment, kind of like we had talked about at 111 Mills or at uh, Sweetbriar. Um, he's, he's creating a new spiritual environment in the same geographic location. So then it moves on, and uh, both in Genesis 9 and in Genesis 1, God commands them to be fruitful and multiply. So that's the same. The recursion presents the same theme and the same, uh, the, the same purpose. In both Genesis 1 and 9, uh, well, 2, rather, in this, in this next part for Adam and Eve, God issues a covenant. He makes a promise to his people, and the first one is that you're going to be married, leave and cleave, and create marriages that can be fruitful and multiply. And in Genesis 9, he tells Noah he can eat meat, and he will not uh, repeat the flood again on the earth. So there's a covenant made. In the next part, there is a, there is a curse connected to the plant. So in Genesis uh, 2, he commands the people not to eat of the fruit of the tree. And in Genesis 9, Noah plants a vineyard. Then, as we get to the end of this uh, verse that we've just covered just now, there's a place where Noah, is, is. it says he's drunk and he is uncovered and naked. And this reminds us completely, exactly, of what happens to Adam and Eve when they're, when they're first uh, created. It says that they are naked and they are without shame. But as I remember we studied about that, that didn't necessarily mean something that was uh, perfect or done yet. It just meant it was without sin and without blemish. The, the, the children, Adam and Eve, were supposed to grow into wisdom so they could rule over the garden, but they, they decided to take their own wisdom and, and take their own truth into their own hands. And so there was a vulnerability that was left. And what the passage is trying to say when the snake came to, to Genesis uh, in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve is that, is that Noah, in his drunkenness, is come back to that place. He is uncovered. He is naked. He is vulnerable. And he is deceivable. He is potentially considering wisdom in his own eyes. He is, he is back at the place where Adam and Eve were. He is a man of the soil. It says on the screen, and I'll put it up there for, you know, I guess clarity and understanding, is that we keep in mind that when the Bible says that somebody is made of dust, it's reminding us of all humanity's finiteness, all of humanity's futility, all of all their mortality, is that every man, woman, and child is ultimately made of dust and breath. That's what Genesis 2 tells us, is that God stooped over the creation, picked up dust, and breathed life into it. And and the only life that we have, the only ability for us to think and grow and, and build things, that only comes from God, is what it's saying. It only comes from God because of his breath. It said, said in the scriptures that he had to retrieve his breath and that man would only live 120 years because he couldn't strive with men that long anymore because they were sinful and so forth. And so, and so that breath is so important. If we lean into that breath and if we lean into ultimately the Holy Spirit, then we would have life, but without the Holy Spirit, New and Old Testament is clear. We are are dead. And so what is it saying about Noah? It's saying that he was just a man of the soil. He was vulnerable. He was naked. He was just like Adam and Eve. All right, let's continue on in the passage. So it says that in verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, so there it is again. He's not just representing himself. It says he saw, and this is an important part of the passage here. It says Ham saw his father's nakedness in his tent. He went in and he saw So remember from Genesis 1, as we've been looking at this, that saw is more than looking. In the Bible, when somebody sees something, it's more than just looking at it. Seeing means means taking in. Seeing often means evaluating. Seeing can mean coveting. Seeing means uh, uh, watching and observing with intent. In God's hands, that's always great. God saw the earth and said it was good. He saw the trees and said it was good. He saw it was man and said it was very good. And he saw man alone without Eve and said, that's not good at all. He sees things accurately, but what the Bible continues to show us and might speak to us today is that our little corneas and our pupils and and, and the cones and whatever it is in our our eyes are not trustable for what we see. The Bible says we can see things and hopefully, um, you know, Jesus opens blind eyes in in his ministry that people would see things, but sometimes humans, oftentimes rather, can see things and not really see them. It says that David saw Bathsheba on the roof. It said that Eve saw the apple and took it. It says, that, it says that Ham saw his father's nakedness and goes and tells his brothers about it. Our eyes can't be trusted the ways that God's eyes can be trusted. And so potentially, not that it's the major point today, you might consider what it means when it says that God will show Abraham the promised land. Later on in the, in, in the study, we'll look at Abraham and some of the, some of the forefathers of the faith and, and, and how the family of God is used to redeem God's broken world, his good world made bad. But there's a difference between us seeing something and God showing it to us. In fact, it's saying a hundred out of a hundred times that if we see something without God showing it to us, it's going to be an error. That man on his own, that woman on his own, seeing a job or seeing a future or seeing a solution or seeing a problem is not seeing clearly unless God is showing it to them. That's how untrusting the scripture is about our eyes, that we don't see with clarity, that our hearts are the things that see and the pure in heart will see God, but the The lack of purity in our heart will blind us. It will cause us to see things distorted and without accuracy, without hope, without vision, without clarity. And if we respond to what we see without trusting God to show us, we'll always make the wrong decision. Even with Solomon's wisdom, with inaccurate perception, we'll make the wrong decisions if God doesn't show us what he wants us to see. So, it goes on and it says this. Uh, Yeah, Ham sees his father's nakedness and he goes to his brothers and, and talks about it outside. And so we're not really sure what it means. The punishment, if it's worth the trespass, means that it could be something pretty severe. Some people have ventured to hypothesize that he saw his father's nakedness and wanted his father's nakedness. Some people could say that he saw his father's nakedness and judged it and ridiculed it and laughed at it. Some would say that he saw maybe his mother's nakedness or the two of them lying in the tent because sometimes speaking of the father in the tent, you'd assume that the mother was there too. Out of all those things, I tend to think because of the blessing boundary that was set at the beginning of the chapter that potentially Ham was seeing reproduction and intimacy and desiring it and wanting to go and take it for himself. But there's many different uh, you know, interpretations of that. So nonetheless, we know that there's, there's a trespass. Ham goes outside and tells his brother. And the question at stake here is not really, again, about Ham or Noah or anybody else. And really, it's never about Abraham or Joseph or Jacob. It is about God. It is about God's covenant and God's character. And what is at stake here is that the humans in their trespass have been made a very important promise. That's the thing when we read this. It is not about Noah. It is about the promise. Will the promise come fulfilled? If the promise come fulfilled, then we know that God is faithful to his promise. If God says something and it doesn't happen, it questions his character. And if it it undermines his character, then we have no hope to stand upon. So the, the kind of tension in the plot needs to be, will the promise be fulfilled? And the promise is this, that, the, that God will not leave his world broken, that he will come to send a redeemer, a rescuer, and that person will come through the line of the people. So if it's going to happen, it's got to happen through these three Dudes, here Sham, Ham, and Japheth. They, they, has to happen if it's going to continue. The Genesis three fifteen says that the one that will cancel the curse and crush the serpent once and forever will come through the line of Eve. And so the decisions that are being made now by the two brothers here are are infinitely important. What will they do? Will 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 they sin against God so much that they could thwart His plan? That they could compromise either His will? or his ability could they sin so far that God couldn't reach them or sin so offensively that he wouldn't want to reach them in the first place this would become the crux of the story because that is the engine the covenant of God will it come fulfilled despite human's choices verse 23 this is what they do shem and japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders then they walked backwards if this was a youth group, I would just spend 10 minutes on this point, just walking backwards into the tent, not trusting their eyes. They don't even look at him. We don't know why. They, they might have learned from Adam and Eve. They might have understood by the thousand years of genealogy between them and their great, 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 great predecessors. But they're not trusting. They're not even going to look at it because they, they know. They know somehow They've been taught that looking at things without God showing them things is dangerous. So they're not even going to look at it. And the scripture says that they walk backwards. They already have the intent at hand. They have the garment over their shoulders. It's not a decision made in the spur of the moment. So they back up to the father. And it says they cover their father's nakedness instead of gossiping about it, instead of talking about it. They cover their father's nakedness. It says their faces were turned the other way so, so they would not see their, their father's nakedness so there's a gloomy portrait that's painted at the beginning of this picture. I mean Noah, our hero, our Superman, our Christopher Reeve, is not who we thought that he was. You probably have heroes like that that you looked up to personal, um, national figures, um, all you know presidents you know George Washington, um, JFK, and Martin Luther King jr. I mean it rocks us when we have Certain people that we believe are front runners in what it might look like to move forward and not backwards in in humanity. In and outside the church, you probably know people, you know, pastors and leaders and, and family members who you thought were walking with God and they weren't walking with God the way that you thought. And that's a bleak way to start the new year. I mean, Noah opened up the tent and it's a new Rosh Hashanah. It was supposed to be a new creation and the first thing he does is goes back to the old cycle. He goes back to Adam and Eve. And, and to be honest, the text is kind of telling, telling you there was really no other way because all humans are made of dust and all humans are just fumbling around in the darkness. And all humans are naked and naive and vulnerable and not able to, to, to be strong on their own. They all need God. And maybe that's not the worst thing in the world to be fumbling around, reaching out for something more than themselves. Maybe that's a great place to be. But nonetheless, the story demands that we realize the fickleness and the futility of humanity. It's a dark beginning. But we have to remember the engine of the story is not Noah. The engine of the story is God's faithfulness to man. And every story as we continue, we need to take solace and rest in the fact that, that even when, and especially when men fail and women fail all the way throughout Genesis, that Joseph's prophecy is true at the end. What man has used for evil, God can change for good. That we cannot thwart his plans in neither their ability or desire that God will always want us and always want restoration and will never be incapable of doing so and executing his plan. This This is the moral we should take or the truth that we should trust out of all this. And so what's God done here? He's taken what was a father who learned to trust God and be faithful and walk with him and he's multiplied sons who are also ruling over temptation the way that God told Cain to do, to guarding their heart, to not trusting their eyes. He's somehow instructed. He's called out faithfulness. We put him next to Noah. We put them next to Noah so that we're reminded it wasn't because of them. It's because God taught them not to do that. And God has led them like children. And God, God has, 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 has called them away from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he's decided to talk to them about wisdom. That they might trust him. And he's redeemed the next generation. Not all people, but some. And so, and so these sons, they actually represent, many believe, the Jews and the Gentiles, as we read on about the curse and the blessing that comes of it, is that there was, there was one son who was, who was blessed and favored into the generations, then another son who would live under their tents. Potentially that's a picture of the European or the Gentile group that would become under the, the Jewish tent of blessing. But nonetheless, we know the blessing. The line has been continued, and not because of man, but because of God and God only. So what has he done? He has moved from just covering in Adam and Eve by himself to raising up priests that will cover for others that they might find mercy. You see? They have, they, have, they have taken a character like Noah who has found mercy. It says in the beginning of his biography that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And it'd be one thing, right, for one person to encounter God and find mercy and find favor in their hour of need. But what if they were to have children that weren't only priests unto themselves but were priests for others and were able to share mercy that they had received from God? This is, the, this is a new thing that he's doing. It says that he has, they have covered for him. And there's a great blessing as I kind of recluded earlier, verse 24, when Noah awoke. So this is just like when Adam and Eve woke up, their eyes were opened, and they saw what they didn't see originally. They were no longer naive, but no longer in the bad way. And so it says, he awoke from his wine and found out that his youngest son had done to him. He says, cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves. Will he be to his brothers. So we have a repeat there of Genesis 3. Instead of, you know, in the last one, Genesis 3, they were cursed to the ground and the snake was supposed to crawl, and the, and the humans were no longer eating fruit from the, from the tree. The humans were eating the, the food of the animals. And it talked about their class in terms of strifing with the animals and having to be like an animal and, and potentially even deferring to being. Anim, animal like in our decision making and so forth is what the thing is and now it talks about being slaves that, that, that disobedience and lacking of trust leads to all kinds of problems and debt and, and strife and, and, and slavery and so it's talking about this one group the Canaanites who are going to be major you know, uh, antagonists in the rest of the story the Canaanites are going to continually suffer under that uh, or struggle under that um, in this curse but then he also says where sin abounds grace abounds even greater Right. this is what Romans says He also said, praise be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan always be the slave of Shem and may God extend Japheth's territory. This is the the great promise to the Israelites because out of that line, or out of Shem's line, rather, is going to be Abraham, the patriarch of of hope. It says, may Japheth live in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. And it says, after that, the flood, uh, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years and Noah lived a total of 950 years and at the end, he died. So, at face value, we see a bleak story, but looking deeper, we see a really important hopeful one. And I think that it would be important for us today as we consider, um, yeah, I guess the compounded disillusionment of of sinfulness in our world and in our own heart and in our life. Reality is is that, um, you know, if you go to work, if you have a job, tomorrow uh, you'll go and work for... People that sin. I think that's how it speaks to us, right? Like like it's 2020, but this will continue on from 2019. We work with people that will sin. We are in homes with people that sin. We, um, we are in school with people that are naked and afraid. Not in a literal sense. We, um, we're in church with people who sin. We're in small group with people who sin. Um. And, and there is there's a brevity there, like there's a weightiness, I suppose. Brevity is not the right word. There's a weightiness there of, of kind of the futility that everyone we talk to and encounter are made of soil, are made of dirt. I mean, that's what the passage is trying to remind us of. But the deal is, like, we shouldn't become impressed or surprised by that. Like, that is how it is. I think sometimes we, we encounter different things and we become kind of flustered and disillusioned because we put too high of an expectation on what man can do. And someone will fall or something will happen and, and all of a sudden it feels like God's not real or something because this thing or circumstance didn't work out the way that it was supposed to work out. But, but ultimately, what the passage is trying to say is that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And that God is, God is ultimately working continually To cover. He's always doing new things. In your family, for example, um, He has has made you to be a grace in your family. The the sentence that came to mind this morning um, as I was sending my notes along is that the grace of God um, isn't just breaking generational sin, it's actually healing it. And so what I see in this passage is not the dark winning out, but History presenting an opportunity to light for light to shine its brightest. The trouble is, is that sin imposes itself as though it must be cyclical. And we think that we're destined to repeat our father's and mother's sins and continue in their line and perpetuate the abuse and the neglect, the short-temperedness, the materialism. You know, I'm just my father's son, I'm just my daughter's, I'm just my father's daughter. And so on and so forth, and so so we do that. But then the other side of it is we don't just repeat sins, we recycle them. And you'll have that kind of decision-making thing in your heart and in your mind continually where you're making that promise to yourself, I'm not going to be like my dad, that lazy whatever, whatever, whatever. And so so then your why, instead of becoming trusting the voice of God, becomes whatever your dad was not. And so we recycle what that thing is, and we continue and perpetuate that thing. But what God is trying to show... is that that we have an image to bear in God that we don't need to image our our mistakes of the past. And we can image God and and actually do what God did. God was the one that covered for Adam and Eve in Genesis um, 3, and now now the generations are covering for their fathers. Who do you cover in in your life? And as as you consider your family, as you consider your friends, as you consider your workplaces, do you see the opportunities um, to cover. Here's a question that I that I thought about. What if Adam had turned to cover Eve? I wonder, wonder what would happen in the story as the storyline progressed and continued. If It says in the, in the scriptures that, you know, when, when Eve ate the apple, you know, and when Adam ate the apple, it says their eyes were uncovered and they, and they saw their nakedness and they had shame and they hid. And this is such a reference for marriage, I think. You know, just in, in marriage is is that fear begins to dominate the narrative rather than love in all relationships. And so our tendency is to cover and protect ourselves and, and, to, and to keep ourselves from being attacked by the other person's authority and what they might do to us or do against us or leverage our vulnerability. But what if in that moment of vulnerability that, that Adam, instead of covering for himself, went to go cover his wife? I wonder what it would have happened. What the story is saying is that he could have, is that, is that God had spoken to Ham and Japheth in the way that or, uh, Japheth and, um, and Shem in the way that they were led to cover. Do we cover? You know, we can't cover. I thought about, you know, this is the intentional question. It's basically the whole discussion I think this morning is, is what do we do when we see sin around us? Should we get surprised? You know, when you go to the zoo, we wouldn't be surprised to see animals there, right? If you saw a duck and it quacked, you wouldn't jump. But yet sometimes I think we get surprised or offended or, or hurt when we see this as though we don't think we're all just people of the soil. And we gawk at it. And we say, can you believe what so-and-so did or said? Blah, 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 blah. I mean, three emotions that I thought of, it'll be on the screen, but three emotions that I thought of that I go through when I see sin in and around me is anger, apathy, and jealousy. Anger because they sin differently than me. Do you ever feel this? If you see a tabloid, let's say, or see some celebrity mouthing off, or you see, you know, maybe some person in church. Uh, you see a friend or a family member we, get, we almost get caught off guard as though we weren't made of soil. And, and it comes to this anger, this resentment, which doesn't allow us to cover. It only allows us to condemn. Or maybe we see this apathy like, ah, hell in a handbasket, it doesn't really matter. It's all going, you know, down, down the road anyways. It doesn't really matter. We're just kicking the can down the road. It, it, it's, it's futile, you know. Or maybe this other one, which is jealousy. And I'll feel that in my own heart is, is I, I know that what this person or that person is doing is, is not where I would like my, my path to end up and not going where I want to go. But sometimes it seems like this world rewards sin more than it does faithfulness, doesn't it? And it, and it can subtly call us and cause us to not move to cover but to condemn or, or to even be jealous and, and cope and coddle that within our family. But this is what I think I see in the passage is that, is that we are responders in the family of God and that we are called not just to break generational breakthroughs, or excuse me, generational patterns of sin, but to see them healed, to see them move to compassion, to see them move to covering, to pray. Here's a passage that, that we need to remind reminded of, I think, in, in this whole discourse is, is, is Isaiah chapter one, verse 18. This is what God says about the nature of being covered. It says, come now, he says, let us settle the matter, matter, and Jesus, it is settled that the Lord says this, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be uh, like wool. That is what uh, Isaiah 1.18 says. So this is, this is the picture that we get, is that, is that God has come, and, and our sinfulness was not able to thwart his ability, his capability, or his desire to cover us. And in Genesis 3, what he was showing, Adam and Eve, was that he was not just going to do that for them, but for all people that would turn and trust him. They would be covered, and not just covered by a blanket, but covered by the powerful blood of Jesus. They would be restored and redeemed to their identity. That They would be set free of apathy, anger, and jealousy. That they would come into their full purpose in God, their freedom. The, the, the things that, that you have seen so many times, and I know that he will continue to show you in your family, of, of, of God covering us perpetually with, with the blood of Jesus. But not just that, that we might turn... And live to cover others is what the invitation I believe is saying. It's the ability to work to move all people and all places under the blood of Jesus. What isn't what is a sin that we have observed? If we see it with God as opposed to our eyes, if we see it with our eyes, we'll only move to condemnation. But if we were to see it through God's eyes, the one who said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, we can only see compassion on all people, right? Isn't that the only way to see it? If we are looking at people and we are offended and impressed by sin, we've known that we've looked at it without God looking at it with us. We've seen seen others' nakedness and sin without Him is what just happened. We've got to get a new approach. We've got to get a new perspective. God, show me who this person is. Show me their image-bearing potential. Show me who they are. Show me who they are in you. I can't make a move until I feel your affection rest upon them. I can't speak to them until I know they're a brother. I can't speak to them until I know that they were created in your image. I I don't want to move a muscle in speaking to them because I do not want to move in condemning. I want to follow in the line of faithfulness that many would be covered. And so every sin and every iniquity and every problem and everything that we're tempted to be jealous or apathetic about needs to get removed in us so that we might move towards people walking backwards, that we might cover people's sin. That when we see all sin and all people covered by the blood of Jesus, this is the mandate. This is the the implications of Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. That sin is not made to be gawked at or something to be gossiped about or something to be complained about or something to make yourself better about. Sin is an invitation into grace as it is in our lives. To be covered, to be brought under the blood of Jesus, the powerful blood of Jesus, that all sin might be reckoned with the blood of Jesus. So I I just invite you, just a thought before we move into... um, into communion is that as, as you think about maybe somebody that's on your mind and you think about um, something that, that really it's pretty much anything that could move us into the feeling of anger, jealousy, or apathy. I wonder what would happen in light of an invitation of Jesus to show you that person instead of trusting your own eyes. And I wonder what that would mobilize in your heart and from your heart comes all sorts of words and decisions in the renewal of the mind. And from that comes an entire different framework to the way that we treat people. I wonder what would happen if you invited the Holy Spirit to show you that person. That's the simple message this morning is, is we can't help anyone we're not praying for and in contempt of. The only way we can serve and, and heal our families and our neighbors and nations is ask God to show, show them to us from his vantage, to understand through the narrative that people are originating from dust and dirt, but they are made glorious by His breath and when embodied by the Holy Spirit, are eternal beings. Would you show us, Father? Would you show us who people really are? And that when we'd walk towards them and not away from Him, we're not gawking or gossiping or worried about it, or flustered, a duck will quack. You know zoos have animals, and people will sin. That's the reality of it. And that he might lead us towards people looking at Him, lead us towards, not away. Not afraid or apathetic, not vindictive or judgmental. We would move towards people looking at Jesus that they might become covered. That we would see all men and all women, all children, and, and all sin ultimately under, under the blood of Jesus. Is that, is that a good word? Is that a good in invitation for us this morning? I want to invite you guys to stand as, uh, as we go and take communion and consider the, these thoughts. So uh, the table, the, the bread and the cup is a covenant sign that God has invited uh, his church to. And, um, and it does represent all the things that we're talking about. It represents the power of what we're talking about, which is the covering of our sin. And so the last night and the last meal with his disciples, he spoke to them and said, this is the covenant. It is a sign. And the sign means this. The sign means that anyone that would turn and trust Jesus, um, whoever you are, wherever you are, uh, anyone that turns and trusts Jesus will see their sin covered. That there is no condemnation for those who trust Jesus. And what that means is, is that um, our actions um, will not define us, um, that uh, our sin is no longer holding us captive, that we are no longer slaves, that our identity is not defined by those shortcomings, it is defined by the price that he's paid. And so as we go and take the bread and the cup, it is a reminder, it's a reminder to us, it is a reminder to those we do community with, that we are covered in him, and that all things are made white as snow. So I want you to prepare your heart as the band comes forward and as they kind of lead us a little bit in worship. We don't ever come to the table flippantly, but we do come confidently. And any part of your life uh, that continues to be naked and afraid, fearful, angry, apathetic, or jealous, I just invite you to let the Holy Spirit see those things through his eyes this morning, to be reminded of the power of the blood of Jesus. There is no human being that is immune to sin, but there is no sin that is immune to Jesus. And so, just as the promise of Isaiah prophesied back then, it's true today that the blood speaks a better word permanent one. So we come to you, not flippantly, but confidently, knowing that as we, as we take, is that you're our deepest need and you're our only hope. And as we come to you, to this cup today, we remind ourselves and remind one another that you've covered us, that you didn't run from us, but you came towards us. And Jesus, you fixed your eyes on the promise and didn't scorn the shame and you moved up um, to that cross. And uh, the culmination of that means that many sons uh, would be forgiven, many daughters would be forgiven, and many sins would be forgiven. So we come to that table this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you guys come down uh, to the uh, altars here and and take. I invite you guys to pray with your families like we do most times. Uh, Your spouses are just friends from group. And uh, just pray and bless each other and take on your own just worship a little bit and then Timothy will close us out in this service. Let's take. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.